I'm Kate. And I'm Stella. We're two rad teenagers who like joking around and learning new things. On our podcast, we talk about the origin of anything or concept. From gingerbread houses to roller skates to pig Latin. Also known as Ig Pay Atenlay. In today's episode, we will discuss the origins of food idioms. So bag, get ready to jam out because this is Sliced, sliced bread. bread. Hey guys! <laughs> this is going to be our first episode of our new podcast, Sliced Bread, as you already know. <laughs> yeah, and we're really excited and also kind of awkward, but it's okay. Yes. Alright, so as you've already heard, the reason for our episode today is going to be about food idioms. And we chose that because... Um, the name of our podcast that we chose, Sliced Bread, is actually based on the idiom that you probably know. The best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to start out with the origin of that one. All right. So, the best thing since sliced bread means that something is really awesome. It originated in the United States of America in the early to mid-1900s. Slicing bread was, of course, something people have been doing for a long time, but the first machine bread slicer was made by Otto Rowetter in 1928. His prototype in 1912 would, was destroyed in a fire. Many bakers were critical of his new machine. They thought it, the bread would go bad if it was sold pre-sliced, and they thought people wouldn't want to buy it that way. But by the 1930s, sliced bread was used in pretty much every U.S. town. The brand Wonder Bread was the first major company to endorse sliced bread. A quote from them states, The greatest forward step in the baking industry since bread was wrapped. This was a phrase that Wonder Bread used to advertise the sliced bread, and people thought it was funny, so they started using the best thing since sliced bread jokingly to say something was great. To this day, the phrase is still sometimes used sarcastically to mean that something really isn't that awesome. So that's the story of the greatest thing since sliced bread, our first food idiom. Pretty short and sweet. We chose this for our name because we think we're pretty awesome and the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> The name sliced bread is also the perfect balance between having real meaning and totally being random. Alright. From here on, we're each going to do our own idioms and afterwards reflect on the story. <clears throat> I really need to do like chorus warm ups before these. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> So our first idiom that I'm going to be doing is hear it on the grapevine. So this idiom is used for rumor or gossip, so it's not exact fact. So an example would be, I heard it through the grapevine that you and Bob broke up. I don't know who Bob is, I just, I just made that up. Anyways, <laughs> it was originated in the United States of America 
and the reason is that it was derived from the appearance of a telegraph pole being similar to the objects used to train grapevines in vineyards. For example, some methods were called cane pruning, which was a more difficult technique um, for cooler regions and it restricts growth to be only the main trunk. Um, and also spur pruning, spur pruning, which was for warmer regions, it was easier and it allowed branches to stem off. So those are some of the methods that they used. Anyways, the telegraph was a machine that was mainly developed by Samuel F.B. Morse. He was the inventor of the Morse code. Users had a transmission key to type out messages in Morse code, and those were sent at 16.5 words per minute, which is pretty slow. It transformed into an electrical current, and it was translated by a register machine um, that translates the current back into code. Originally, the telegraph was um, translated by actual people instead of machines, but later that was changed because obviously it wasn't effective. In 1866, a telegraph line was constructed across the Atlantic Ocean, leading to the creation of the transcontinental telegraph. So this cost $7.40 for every 10 words. So that would be around $210 now, which is pretty darn expensive. Also, later on, prices eventually fell, but originally it limited its users to be only businesses, rich people, or only used in emergencies. So in short, due to the telegraph pole's similar appearance to a grapevine and its use to communicate, the idiom, hear it through the grapevine, was formed. Something sort of strange, however, is how many didn't even use the telegraph because it was so expensive, so you couldn't really gossip back then. Anyways, some of the sources that I used were history.com and One Stop English. I've had the song Heard It Through the Grapevine stuck in my head every single time I researched this idiom because, yeah. <laughs> I probably would too. <laughs> yeah. That was not what I was expecting. I thought it would have something to do with, like, people working to make wine or something. I don't know. <laughs> Wherever people work with grapevines. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a weird origin. So it was, like, on a telephone pole, you know, like, the ones there are today. You know how some of those poles have the things sticking out? Is it kind of like that, or did it look different? No, it did look like that. Um, those things would be referred to as spurs on the actual things. So they're basically these like little things sticking out. <laughs> it's hard to describe them because a lot of the like objects didn't really have an exact name back then. So, Well, very cool. Thank you. <laughs> Alright, so for my idiom, the first one, um, it's actually kind of a double whammy because there are two idioms that mean the same thing and they came from the same place. And this is piece of cake and cakewalk, which essentially mean it's easy. They're used as nouns in a sentence, for example, that jog was a piece of cake. 
or my brother's homework is no cakewalk. They're commonly used both positively and negatively. So these phrases originated in the United States. It's first recorded in the book Primrose Path by poet Ogden Nash, who said, her picture's in the papers now and life's a piece of cake. But the phrase itself came from before that, so we're talking like mid-1800s. Which, as you'll notice, was unfortunately a time when slavery was still legal. Plantation owners held events called prize walks, where their slaves would be paired up to compete. The couples would take turns walking in a square around the room, trying to be the most precise and graceful looking and improvise dances along the way to try and, you know, get the most attention. And the prize for the winning couple was a cake. And the cake would be presented by the plantation owners, who were actually the judges. Unknown to the usually white plantation owners, the black participants would oftentimes be mocking the attitude and motions of white dances influenced by the stiff European style of dance. So prize walk dances also influenced the cakewalk dance. Slavery was abolished with the 13th Amendment in 1865, but this wasn't an end to prize walks, which were at this time commonly called cakewalks. You'll recognize that name from the, uh, you know, modern ad adaptation you see at carnivals today. But anyway, they became popular and were used in minstrel shows, which were these terrible forms of entertainment that made fun of black culture, usually by white men in blackface. So, back to the cake. <laughs> the point of the prize walks were to make it seem like you moved with ease, hence the meaning of the idiom cakewalk. This idiom later developed into the piece of cake idiom as well. So, that's the origin story, and although finding it wasn't quite a piece of cake, it was really interesting. <laughs> Thanks to Bloomsbury International's idiom blog, NPR, and History.com for the information I got here. I have a question, though. Yes. Do you know what flavor of cake it was, if there even was any? Um, I don't think it was a specific flavor. I think it would be different every time. Mm. But I, they were like decorated cakes. It wasn't just like a oh. yucky looking cake. Well, that's good, I guess. All right. So those were our first idioms and we'll be right back. See you after the break. After the cake. <laughs> 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 Sorry, that sounded weird. We'll be right back. Alright guys, we're back. Before we get back into the idioms, I have for us the word of the episode, which is paragon. 
The definition of paragon, according to Oxford Dictionary, is a person or thing regarded as a perfect example of a particular quality. This might have come from another rarer definition of being an unusually large round pearl. This word came from Greek and later Italian origins with the meaning of a touchstone used to test if gold was good or bad. Then, in the mid-16th century, the current version was established in France. Very interesting, Stella. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Our fourth idiom of the day is take it with a grain of salt. So this idiom is derived in ancient Rome in the province of Transpadane Gaul. That was hard to say. Town of Novum Comum, now known as Como Province in, in northern Italy. The definition of this idiom is look at a situation carefully and with skepticism. Also, the connotation is neutral. Alright, so... A book was written by Pliny the Elder in ancient Rome. Pliny? Yeah, that's his name, Pliny the Elder. <laughs> I would love to have that name, actually. You can call me that. Okay, Pliny the Elder. Alright, keep going. So this, this idiom originated at around 77 BCE from an encyclopedia, but not really, named The Natural History. This encyclopedia was written by Pliny the Elder in the ancient Roman Empire time period. He was a very busy man as he worked for the Empire Vespasian. I am definitely sure I pronounced that wrong. <laughs> he wrote his books, there were ten others in the series, at night. So he was quite the night owl. A quote from him says, to be alive is to be watchful. So he definitely was not getting enough sleep. So it was one of the first printed European texts, printed in 1469. He tried to encapsulate all art, environment, education, and more in 37 books in his series, yet only 10 were finished by the time he died. His work described many exotic imports into the Roman Empire, like spices and even a fake phoenix. Anyways, he noted that salt plus walnuts, figs, and rue leaves could alleviate poison. The actual idiom took a lot longer to be commonly used as we know today. To wrap things up, does salt actually help to aid someone who's poisoned? No, it doesn't! Don't use salt to try and treat someone who's been poisoned because it will not work. So an example of using the idiom take it with a grain of salt is take Pliny's review of the world with the grain of salt because he was around way before modern medicine. The end. <laughs> nice. I have questions though about the fake phoenix. I'm pretty sure it would be like a turkey because when i was reading about it they were saying that it obviously wasn't a phoenix and usually people would just like rumor about it to be something a lot bigger than it was so that's my guess okay so 
Basically, the idiom, take it with a grain of salt, came from this guy saying how salt alleviated poison. Yeah, he was like describing a recipe. So he was just like, grab some figs and walnuts and take it with a grain of salt. And then people were like, uh, Yeah, basically. Take it with a grain of salt. Exactly. (laughs) So it had definitely a much different meaning back then than it does today. Yeah, a literal meaning. Yes. Okay. My next one also kind of has a literal meaning, speaking of which. My last idiom is don't cry over spilled milk. This idiom means that being upset won't fix your problems. It's used as its own sentence. For example, if you bump into someone and start furiously apologizing they might say it's nothing don't cry over spilled milk this phrase originated in europe from around the 1200s but jumping to more modern times in written works jonathan swift from ireland wrote in his book in 1738 that tis a folly to cry for spilt milk And before that, in 1659, James Howell, a Welsh writer, published in a book of Proverbs, No Weeping for Shed Milk. So those are just some variations in some of the earliest text recordings of that idiom. Anyway, the phrase came from European folklore in a time when belief in fairies was much more common. Basically, milk is said to be a fairy's favorite food, so if you spilled some, it was fine because it was a gift for the fairies who would come and drink it up. Fairies were first mentioned in texts in the 12th century by Gervais of Tilbury. I have no idea if that's how you pronounce his name. (laughs) And their liking of milk and dairy was established by Gerald of Wales, a royal clerk to the British king who discussed British faith in fairies during the Middle Ages, so that's around 1200, in his book, Tour of Wales. People honored fairies with shrines of food and milk, and they were fearful of the mischief or curses any fairies would inflict on them, so it was better to keep them happy. One specific type of fairy, like a pixie, is the most what you envision when someone says the word fairy, but it could refer to like any type of mythical creature. And one example of this is something called a brownie. People would actually intentionally leave milk out for them, and at night they would come in and drink the milk or eat whatever food was left out and then clean the house. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. In conclusion, it was no big deal if a little milk was spilled because it could be seen as something other than a spill, rather a gift for the fairies. My main sources here were 5-Minute History and the British Fairies website. Alright, I have a question. Yes. (laughs) My question is, what kind of milk 
would the fairies prefer, do you think? Would it be like goat milk or cow milk? Or do they just not care? I have never met a fairy, but I think that either would be fine. I know there were lots of stories about fairies who would like go in and steal um, milk from the cows in like people's farms. So probably cow's milk. I really haven't heard anything about goat's milk, but I don't think it would make a difference. Interesting, interesting. Also, <laughs> what is this? No weeping for shed milk. <laughs> like, imagine being remembered for a quote like that. <laughs> I mean, it's just another way to say don't cry over spilled milk. <laughs> shed milk. It reminds me of tears when you say the word shed. <laughs> yeah. Alright, so I guess we'll jump into our last idiom of the day, and that is my idiom, a hot potato. So the definition of a hot potato is an issue that is widely disputed and many don't feel comfortable discussing it. So like politics at the dinner table, stuff like that. This idiom is pretty similar to the elephant in the room. We're not really sure of the exact origin location, but one of the first uses for this idiom was in a memoir written in Chicago called The Recollections of an Eventful Life by Chief O'Neill. The idiom comes from the 19th century from the phrase to drop like a hot potato. When potatoes are boiled, they will be pretty hot because they have a considerable amount of water still inside them because they're 80% water. That's a lot. So anyways, this idiom had a really short origin story, so I kind of went down a wormhole of potato facts and potato stats. So here you go. The average American eats 110 potatoes a year. I'm definitely not going to pronounce this right, but Peter Dowdiswell in 1978 set the record for fastest potato eating, which was three pounds of potatoes. In how long? <laughs> in one minute and 22 seconds. Man's really eating so many potatoes. <laughs> okay, my last stat. 55% of potatoes grown in the U.S. become frozen french fries. Yay! So that's the end of the origin story of a hot potato. And also, my source, the main source that I used, was nppga.org. <laughs> I'm such a kid! I... Okay, okay, this is kind of unrelated, but do you remember when our 8th grade math teacher would say, I'm going to drop you like it is hot? I remember that. I remember him. Yeah. He was my favorite math teacher. Remember how he had a tiger? No. Wait, yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, and also, I have a question for you. Alright, what's your question? How many times can you say the word potato without laughing? Okay, let me, let me try, let me try. Potato, 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 potato. Five. <laughs> I don't know why it's so funny. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> All right. 
so that's all of our food idioms. Which one was your favorite? Was it a hot potato? Was it spilled milk? Was it piece of cake? I think mine had to be spilled milk. What about you, Stella? I think out of all the foods here, cake would be my favorite food, but I don't know what my favorite idiom was. I mean, I love potatoes. I mean, this could be a whole meal here. Some potatoes, salted potatoes, bread. Oh, this is kind of a lot of carbs, though, and starch. Okay, never mind. This was Sliced Bread, the podcast, on today's episode about food idioms. We'd like to give a special toast to our own brains and our sources who made this episode possible. To wrap it up, here's this episode's slice of advice. The way I see it, if you want the rainbow, you gotta put up with the rain by Dolly Parton. All right, remember to take risks by going against the grain. And when things go awry and life gets a little crummy, just keep your bread up and stay yummy. Thank you so much for listening and make sure to tune in for our next episode. Bye!